Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you, choir, praise team, for leading us. That's some new faces up there. It's good to see that, right? Some of you men, though, are still holding back your voices, all right? You guys got to get signed up for that. You guys got to get in there, all right? Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Now, last week, in a way, we began a new series within this series, Live Light. Now, up to this point, especially Ephesians 1 through 3, we've looked at the church. We've looked at the church's identity and the unity in Jesus. And last week, we saw how Paul shifts his entire letter in chapter 4, and he sets the stage for the second half of the book by using this word, therefore. Therefore, because of all of this, everything that he's talked about from Ephesians 1 through 3, because of who we are now in Christ, we are to live differently. We're to live light, live love. We're to live Jesus. We're to live the new humanity in everything and in anything. We saw that our identity, just like with Paul's readers, that our identity is no longer primarily wrapped up in our ethnic national background or denomination or political affiliation. Our identity is not wrapped up in ourselves. Our primary identity now is in Christ I'm a Christian now, a little Christ. I'm a son or daughter. I'm no longer darkness or death. I belong, no longer belong to the old self, but now I'm light in the Lord. I'm life in the Lord. This is now who I am, which is greatly important because as we saw, if who we are has changed, then it follows that what we do will change. As I argued last week, behavior follows our sense of identity. Behavior is produced from identity. For example, if your occupational identity is a teacher, and we have some teachers in the room, then what you do is you teach students or adults. You prepare lessons. You grade papers. You lead a class. You teach. But if tomorrow your occupational identity became a police officer, it follows then that what you do would change. Behavior follows our sense of identity. It is produced from identity, and we naturally know this. It's why when someone asks us, hey, what do you do? They're asking us about behavior, yet we respond with occupational identity. Oh, I'm a teacher. And they immediately imply, oh, what you do then is you teach and you prepare lessons and you grade papers. Or if you say, well, I teach students, and I grade papers, and I um, do all, I lead a classroom and everything, they would deduce from that that, oh, you're a teacher. That's who you are. And why do we do this? Because behavior and identity are almost nearly synonymous, because behavior naturally follows identity. And so in the latter half of Ephesians, Paul wants his readers to know that who they are, their identity now, is that they are children of God no longer children of the world. Their identity has changed, and so therefore it follows that what they do had better change. How they act, how they react, how they speak, how they think, all of that should change. They are now to be imitators of God, as he says in five, chapter 5, verse 1. We are now to live a life, as he says in chapter 4, verse 1, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called in everything and in anything. So, as he'll allude to later, take off your old humanity, that old self, those old clothes, that old nature, 
that's full of confusion and chaos and wickedness and idolatry and division and lust and hatred and greed and gossip and slander and hypocrisy and so on. And instead, put on the new self. Live in such a way that you are worthy enough to bear the name Christian. To bear the title son or daughter of God Most High. Now, for the next four weeks, we're going to finish covering chapters 4, 5, and 6. That's going to be a tall task, but we're going to do it. And these three chapters really come down to this. So we've seen, therefore, therefore, because of all of this, because of our identity and unity, we're to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Chapter 4, verse 1 sets the stage for the rest of the half of this book, meaning we are to live unity, live oneness. We're to live responsibility. We're to live purity. We're to live humility. We're to live intensity. So again, last week we looked at oneness. We looked at unity and how we must live meekness in order for there to be oneness. We looked at John 13, Philippians chapter 2. We saw that we're to live Christ, who was meek and lowly in heart and soul. We're to live meekness for there to be oneness. I'm to consider others more important than myself. I'm to give my life to others. As Paul says even here to the Ephesians, I'm in prison for the Lord on your behalf. That's meekness. And once lived out, it naturally will produce oneness. Well, part of living meekness is living a life of service. And this is what I want us to see today, is that each one of us, if we're to live a life worthy of the calling, if we're to imitate God in everything and in anything, then we must be faithful in our responsibility, or faithful to our responsibility. See, each of us has a responsibility to the body of Christ. If you are in Jesus, if you're in Jesus, you have a responsibility to the body of Jesus, to his church. Each one of us has a role to play, a position to serve in. Just as an offensive lineman has a responsibility to his team to fulfill his role in any given play and in any given game for the betterment of the team, for the building up of the team, for the sake of unity, for the sake of the overall mission of the team, so it is with us in the church. And I want to introduce this idea in which Paul is going to get to here in these verses that we're going to look at. But I want to introduce this idea by having you watch this video. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I don't know who sets the worship center temperature, but why does it have to be so cold? Why do you have to be so right? Heated chairs are now being installed. This one wants a small church, but I'm afraid if it's too small, they're going to make me volunteer like crazy. And I don't stack chairs, do I? Makes total sense. Join now and we'll let you decide the size of our church. We're millennials, and we want a church that... Say no more. Any requests you have will be granted immediately. (laughs) Parking is horrible. It takes me almost six minutes to get from my car to the building. It's going to take me six seconds to tell you a valet service is on the way. My pastor's preaching, it's all over the map. I say, oh, I don't know, stick with the books of the Bible. We should be only exegetical. Okay, 
Next week, we start John chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll even start pronouncing that word the way you said it. Hey, I'd like this sermon to be no longer than 30 minutes. How does 15 minutes sound? Hey, anybody willing to go 15 should be willing to go to 10. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain. But from now on, five-minute sermons it is. <laughs> now you're talking. Me, church, where it's all about you. Now, we laugh at that video a little bit. And for some of us, that kind of stings because it kind of hits home. Because some of us have said those very same words. Why is that? Because we are consumers in this culture. With consumer mindsets and consumer expectations. Everywhere we go. Whether it's to a restaurant, a retail chain, an amusement park, an entertainment facility. We take with us our consumer mentality and our consumer expectations. And if those expectations are not met, if we're not satisfied, if it's not clean enough, friendly enough, warm enough, entertaining enough, if you don't offer what I'm looking for, you don't speak long enough, you speak too long, if you don't do this, that, or the other, et cetera, et cetera, we're just going to take our business elsewhere. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this. I think it's good business, right, in the secular world. Actually, we live in a free economy even. But our consumer mentality and expectations have bled into the context of the church. So somewhere along the line, we started approaching the church like we do a car dealership or a restaurant or a movie theater, even a country club even. Well, I pay my dues. I darken your doors. So now what can you do for me? How can you do it? When can you do it? Where can you do it? What will you do for me? And should you fail to meet my expectations, I'm leaving the church. I'm going to that other place across town. The Wilsons went on vacation this week. You can ask them how wonderful it is. Nick says he doesn't have sea legs, but I think he's got the sea legs. I'm just joking. But anyways, they went on a cruise, and it reminded me of the only cruise that Stephanie and I have ever been on. And it happened 10 years ago, 2000. 12, we'd just gotten married, and we went on this cruise for our honeymoon, and it was in a luxurious boat. If you've ever been on one, you know what I'm talking about. Anything I wanted, when I wanted it, how I wanted it. If I wanted it, food in the room, if I wanted food on the deck, if I wanted food in the um, cafeteria area, the restaurant area, anything I wanted, any time of day, anywhere, I had it. I mean, there were servers everywhere for about everything you could possibly imagine. It was complete luxury, complete convenience and comfort, people waiting on you hand and foot, and I didn't have to do a single thing. I paid my dues. The church is nothing like that. (laughs) At least it's not supposed to be. It was never designed to be this way. Now listen, as a millennial, that's why that one hits home with me there, consumerism has been ingrained in me by this culture. It's why I'm now part of the generation that decides in the first 15 minutes of stepping foot on a church's campus whether or not I'm coming back to this church. It's why I'm now part of the generation that decides in the first week of a new job whether or not I'm going to work at that job long term. Consumerism has been ingrained in me by this culture. But we, as believers in this culture, regardless of our generation, we cannot turn the idea 
of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ upside down. That mentality that says it's always someone else's job to clean, to greet, to lead, to teach, to visit, to serve, to go, to watch the kids. All of that has to change. All of that mentality has to die. Or we will have unhealthy churches, which leads to unhealthy communities, which leads to unhealthy cultures. Tom Rainier in his book, I Am a Church Member, said nine out of ten churches in America, nine out of ten, are declining or growing at a pace that is slower than that of their communities. He says one of the major reasons is because many of us church members, we've lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We join our churches expecting others to serve us, others to feed us, others to care for us, and us to do nothing in return. We've begun to proclaim and believe that you serve me, you meet my needs, you die for me. Meanwhile, I don't have to do the thing. I'm just here to do me the way I want it. But that's not what being a part of the body is all about. We are to be like Christ. This is Paul's, in essence, points. We are to be like Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. To lay down his life for others. That's what our master did. And as Jesus says, we're not greater than he. It's in the body of Christ that we should see the image of Christ lived out in everything and in anything. As Ranger goes on to say, God places us in churches to serve others, to care for others, to pray for others, to learn from others, to teach others, to give of ourselves to others, and in some cases even to die for the sake of the gospel. We're to be one in this, all of us. God has specifically called you in the church to serve, to give, to sacrifice, to lead, to do something. In Christ, God has given us a responsibility to his church. It doesn't matter our age. It doesn't even matter the gift or the circumstances or even how long we've been a believer. We have the Holy Spirit of God in us. And we have a responsibility to his church, to our brothers and sisters in Jesus. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says the church is like a human body. One body, many parts. And all parts are necessary for the overall health and betterment of the body. It's a fascinating analogy that he even uses here again in Ephesians 4. Because the human body is complex. It's massive when it comes to its individual parts. And we could talk about fingers and toes and eyes and so on, but there's different systems in the body, like the circulatory system, the immune system, the muscular system, the lymphatic system. And there are many, many parts within each system. And all of these parts come together, they work together, they function together to form one body. So we all have different roles to play. We're all different. We all have different skills and gifts that God has given us. Some are seen, some are unseen. But we have roles that only we can fill. That's how God has designed it. The church is designed for you to be present and faithfully serving the body according to the calling that he has placed on you. You're needed. You have a responsibility to his church. And listen, this is deeply important to know. Because consumer mindset and expectations within the context of the church will drive us into isolation and individualism. 
In other words, it's not harmless. It's not okay. And it's actually, as Paul will argue in Ephesians 4, actually quite dangerous. Look at verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4, and this is what Paul writes. He says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's quoting from Psalm 68 there. Verse 9, and saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints, those in Christ, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or adulthood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children in our minds and in our hearts, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, ultimately coming from the evil one. Verse 15, rather though, so that we would speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There's this human body analogy again. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, in verses 8 through 10, Paul quotes Psalm 68, as I said. And we could really get into the weeds here and debate on what in the world is Paul talking about here. And books, in essence, have been written almost on these couple of verses. And if you want to know more about the different varying interpretation points, let's go get some coffee this week, and we'll go through them all. But here's my ultimate conclusion based off all of them, is this, in essence, what Paul is saying. Jesus descended to the earth. As he would say in Philippians 2, in the fact that he emptied himself and took the form of a servant simply by becoming a human being. It's the equivalent of a king taking the form of a lowly peasant, leaving his castle and his domain to become a lowly peasant for the sake of peasants. He descended to the form of a slave, as we saw it in John 13, and as we connected that to Philippians 2 last week. Yet, we know the story. He laid down his life for sinners. He was crucified publicly, buried, but then conquered sin and death in resurrection. Take heart, he has overcome the world. And he ascended in glory and in perfection and sits at the right hand of the Father in complete authority and kingship and lordship. He ascended in glory and victory like a warrior conquering the enemy and the enemy's land and taking with him the spoils. 
And although Jesus deserves all the splendor, the glory, and the riches, yet He, out of His grace, Paul talks about, He gifts to us His sons and daughters, gifts, to use them to build up the church, he argues, his body here on earth. In other words, to continue his mission and ministry, his message unto every generation until the fullness of time, until we share with him in glory. One commentator rightly pointed out that grace given in this context, context is not for salvation, as we read about earlier on. It is grace to serve. He has gifted you a gift. You, specifically, in and through his Holy Spirit, he has gifted you a gift to serve the body, to build up the body of Jesus. These gifts are not as a result of your natural talents and abilities, in which he gave you, though. They are a gift from him, the King, the Lord, the one who dwells in victory. And Paul is arguing here that Christ has gifted all believers Every part of the body, all, all, all. In other words, God has urged us to walk in oneness, in unity. But he does not leave us empty-handed. He did not leave us alone. He gives himself to us in the Holy Spirit who produces fruit and who extends to us a gift. That gift looks different for every one of us. But it has a purpose behind it. And that's to build up the body. Which reveals, though, That unity, as we've talked about, does not mean uniformity. As one commentator said, God has built diversity into the body by variously gifting all of its people to serve in different capacities to promote overall growth and maturity. Going back to Tom Rainier, he said it this way, the fact that there is so much diversity in our church is our strength. Everyone has a function. Everyone should be functioning. Everyone should have a role. Because we're all different with different gifts and abilities. We will function differently from other members. But if we are true and biblical church members, we will be functioning members. And Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 12. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. This is the same kind of language that he uses here in Ephesians 4. Let us use those gifts. Let us put them into practice. He says this. In 1 Corinthians 12, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. And even Peter said it this way, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards, hear this, of God's varied Grace, same language here as in Ephesians 4. In other words, each one of us has been given a gift. And we're to serve according to that gift, that role, that responsibility. My role as a pastor is to equip you, Paul says, for the work of ministry. It's not, oh, well, we pay those people to do everything. We pay them, we pay them. No, it's we're all in this together. Even though we do pay certain people like pastors to oversee certain things, we're all in this together. My ultimate job is to equip you to create platforms and opportunities and discipleship and avenues for you to do the work of the ministry. Because you also have a responsibility to the ministry of the church. You can do something and bring something to the table that I cannot. 
And you, like me, have a specific gift that God has specifically given out of all of his grace for us to use that gift in the church and through the church. Maybe it's organization for you. Maybe it's administration. Maybe it's leading something. Maybe it's artistic or relational. Maybe it has to do with hospitality. Maybe it has to do with acts of kindness or compassion, a behind-the-scenes kind of role, or a role up front. I have no idea. But God has something for you. And you might be thinking, yeah, Jonathan, but I've done my dues. I did my time. Maybe in that particular role, sure. But there's absolutely no such thing in Scripture of your retirement to serving the church. If you say, well, Jonathan, all I can literally do is pray, that's your responsibility then. It is something. Maybe you say, well, all I can do is mentor a young lady or a man, for that is all you can do, but it is something, and you should do it. Or you might say, well, Jonathan, serving is just not for me. Why would I do that? I just can't do it. It's not for me. But this goes back to living meekness. As Paul argued in Philippians 2, we are to do nothing, absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we're to value others above ourselves. We're not to look to our own interests, but each of us are to look to the interest of others. In our relationships with one another, we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that is to humble ourselves, to become meek, as we saw last week, to consider others better than ourselves and their interests more important than ours, and to serve them with our lives, whether it's praying for them, whether it's mentoring them, whether it's lifting them up, whether it's encouraging them, even if it's rebuking them. Because Jesus came to serve, not to be served, to give up his life, to sacrifice, to give. And if we're his followers, we are called and commanded to do the exact same thing. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, the eye cannot say to the hand, well, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, well, I don't need you. There's no such thing as an individual Christianity. No such thing. God has so arranged, as he argues in 1 Corinthians, that the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose, he has so arranged them. Even as he argues in Ephesians 4, every joint, every person is needed. We all need to be functioning in the body. We all have a responsibility to the church. And many of us will pray, well, Lord, should I be involved or should I serve in the church? But that's the wrong question. We should be asking, Lord, how can I be involved? How can I serve in the church? Now, you might be thinking, okay, why is this so important? Well, Paul brings this up. Paul brings up the implications and the effects of an individual Christianity and the danger that lurks there when we do go down that path. Because you and I, we are riding a warship on the seas, not a cruise ship. We are in the fight for souls. We are in the fight for truth, for love, for true justice. You and I are at war. We're not riding a luxurious boat on vacation. We're at war not on vacation. It's important, as Paul says, so that we may no longer be children, immature in our thinking and our understanding and our knowledge of the truth, so that we may not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, and we see that even in our current culture. 
We see human cunning all over the place. We see craftiness and deceitful schemes coming from humans and coming from those in the spiritual forces of darkness and evil. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is we have to be one. We have to be united, walking side by side for the sake of the gospel. We have to be serving one another. Every person is needed to give to the responsibility to the church so that we may no longer be taken advantage of by the enemy. In his book, The Pearl, by John Steinbeck, who's not a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but in this book, he referred to a priest. And the priest had said that it was though each man and woman is like a soldier sent by God to guard some part of the castle of the universe. Some are in the ramparts, and some are far deep in the darkness of the walls. In other words, some are seen, some are unseen. The priest goes on to say, but each one of us must remain faithful to his post and must not go running about, else the castle is in danger from the assaults of hell. I don't know quite about that, but I do know this. He brings up a good point in how this can potentially relate to the church. Because every member of the church is like a soldier commissioned, called by God to guard, to serve, to have responsibility over and to some part of the castle of the body of Christ, so to speak. Some are in ramparts, some are seen and visible out in the open, but some are far deep in the darkness of the walls where nobody ever sees them. But each one is to remain faithful to his or her post and must not go running about, else the castle is in danger from the assaults of the enemy. And that, in essence, is what Paul is saying here, is that the church is more like a battleship, if you will, than a cruise ship. Everyone has a part to play. We're at war. And there are different parts, some more visible than others, some a little bit more responsibility than others, but each person plays a role. Each person has responsibility to use their gifts, whether it's singing, whether it's leading or teaching or organizing or greeting or hospitality or prayer, whatever it might be, to serve the body, to build up the body. And we're to do this until his appearing. This is the way he's designed it until the very end. Until full maturity, until the reality of this world dissolves like snow, until you and I share in the glory of the Lord and reign with him in glory happily ever after. You know, it's interesting, after World War I, There was a short time of prosperity, a very short time of prosperity. Then came the Great Depression. We know this. And then on the eve of World War II, our country was divided, much like it is now. But then something happened. Pearl Harbor. The enemy attacked the castle, if you will. Which kicked into gear our World War II United War efforts. Every person, young, old, male, female, black, white, celebrity, non-celebrity, all of us came together as one. We served as one. One nation, many parts. Each person doing what he or she could for the betterment of the nation. For the building up of the nation. For the sake of our mission or the overall mission of the nation. And what's amazing about that to me is how lives change, how priorities change, how divisions change, how spirits change when people recognize and acknowledge the urgency and the severity of the circumstances surrounding them 
like war. Paul makes it very, very clear here. We are in the midst of a spiritual war. And if we're not ready for this mentally, spiritually, in his word, studying and praying, and if we're not meeting together, if we're not serving one another, if we are not living Christ among our gatherings, among one another, the man, the enemy will attack. He will attack the castle. The church, in essence, is our battleship. And how do we fight back? We live unity. We live oneness. We live meekness. We remain faithful to the responsibility he's given us to his church. We serve just as he served. We acknowledge that the church is not a cruise ship where I do absolutely nothing and get everything in return. We each have a role to play, a part to play. Earlier in this letter, Paul said, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should what? That we should walk in them. You have a purpose, a responsibility to the church. What is yours? Out of his grace, what has God given to you to serve the body? How will you surrender? And how will you remain faithful to that responsibility? With heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward. In this time of response, maybe your prayer is, Lord, I'm, going to, I'm committed from this day forward to serve to jump into this role, to jump into this position, to jump into this rotation, to serve. Maybe you say, Lord, you've been putting this on my heart that I should serve in a different capacity. You say, now I'm going to be faithful and obedient in that. But maybe others of you, he's just calling you to pray for the sake of our church and the sake of the church at large, for oneness, for unity, for every one of us to begin to serve one another, to lay down our lives for one another, to live Christ in and through the body of Christ, to pray for our church and the church at large for this. Others of you, maybe you say, man, Jonathan, I'm outside of Christ. I'm living in sin. I have no hope. Man, Jesus is calling you to come follow him, to repent, to believe, and receive a new life in him. To go from death into life, darkness into light, from non-child status to child status. Be obedient. And it's calling on your heart to follow him. Maybe others of you say, man, I just need to get baptized. Or, man, I need to join the church. I just need to do something, but I don't know what. Jonathan, can you talk to us? Nick, can you talk to me? Maybe you should need to come down for that. But I'm going to have you stand with us. And I'm going to pray. And after that, you be obedient to the Spirit's calling on your heart. So let's stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus and your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the church. Lord, in this time, stir our hearts and minds to respond to you according to your calling on our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus.